Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. As election 2020 approaches, this week we're sharing another program about the history of presidential elections. Last night, experts Fernita Tolson, Ned Foley, James Caesar, and Robert Lieberman joined NCC President Jeffrey Rosen to discuss the most contentious elections in American history and what we can expect if election 2020 resembles those contentious elections. Here's Jeff. Ned, let's start with you. We have so much to discuss, and our goal is just to learn as much from the history of disputed elections as we can to understand our current vexations and what a close election today might produce. So tell us about the thesis of your book, Ballot Battles, The History of Disputed Elections. You note that disputed elections in the founding era didn't begin with the famous election of 1800, but preceded it. And questions about how to count votes fairly were endemic from the very beginning of the Republic. What can those founding era lessons teach us today? Yeah, thanks, Jeff, and thanks for uh, this great program. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, the founders struggled with all the issues that we're struggling with this year. This year, there's a big question all around the country about absentee ballots and whether or not voters will be tripped up by the rules. They'll submit ballots, but maybe they'll be disqualified for missing a witness signature or, or being late or some error that will cause them to be uh, thrown out. Well, that same type of issue um, was at the founding. There was a New York governor's race in 1792. One of the authors of the Federalist Papers, John Jay, was running for governor. He was willing to leave being chief justice of the United States Supreme Court to run for governor of New York. That's so different back then than it is today. But the same basic question, whether or not election disputes should be handled through strict interpretation of the rules or leniency to protect voters from disenfranchisement. That philosophical debate was on both sides of that dispute, and it's been on both sides of almost every dispute since then. And the founders realized that their democracy, their young democracy, was an experiment, and it it needed more institutional development that they gave it because they realized they had not created the perfect institution for adjudicating a dispute with this kind of clash. And we still see that today. Thank you very much for summing up that uh, clash so well. James Caesar, you've written about this basic change in the concept of elections from one designed to protect uh, the republic from populist demagogues to one that became increasingly democratic. Uh, Tell us about that change and and how the founding era relied on those sort of sober checks to resolve disputed elections. Well, I believe uh, in in the founding era, uh, the most significant point is the Constitution didn't envisage that there would be be political parties or nominations. So the Electoral College was supposed to handle the entire choice of president from beginning to end. And the first uh, election we look at today in some depth is the election of 1800, which is one of the fiercest partisan struggles we've seen in the United States. So things changed very quickly. And um, uh, that that, that created problems. Of course, when you get to the 20th century of the opening up of things into uh, primaries and nominations by, uh, in effect, by the people, and therefore to an extended period in which uh, the various candidates can and do, can and do exercise all sorts of means to try and get themselves elected beyond the control even of their political parties, as we saw in 2016, uh, in an effort to, to, to become the nominees and to open the, the system up uh, to demagogic appeals, which are, uh, I think, endemic to our system today and likely to remain endemic uh, in the future for as long as the, as the Republic uh, lasts. I also think, uh, going back to 1800, since uh, that's one lecture we, we, we look at, uh, b- beyond the, the question of mechanics, there's the great question of whether people will accept the outcome of an election. Even when the the, the, the formal uh, uh, factors are clear who should win, will people accept it? And one of the amazing things that comes out of the election of 1800, you might have expected the two sides to square off in something more than an election at the end, with either side willing to accept it. And eventually they did. I think that election in a way set democracy uh, on a somewhat successful uh, course by the two partisan sides 
at the end of the day, trying to, to cheat in every way to get their candidate um, uh, elected. Uh, but they finally accepted the outcome of that election. Thanks very much uh, for that. And that question of whether the losers accept the result is crucial. And, and Ned, Ned has noted that uh, in 1884 and 1916, it was important that although the loser didn't immediately concede, the system held strong. Frenita, I can't wait to read your book about congressional enforcement of voting rights from the founding era to the Jim Crow era. Um, to what degree was Congress involved in resolving disputed election in the founding era? And having put this question of partisan polarization on the table, were the founders prepared to deal with this rise of political parties? So I think that it depends on which um, level of elections we're talking about to some extent. So uh, one thing that strikes me about this history is the fact that the Congress and um, political parties, no one is ever quite ready for the level of partisanship. And so in my mind, we just kind of go along from one election to an, another, hoping for the best. And then uh, we have a controversy that is an opportunity for us to revisit our system. And we never really do quite satisfactorily. Like, for example, with the 12th Amendment, that was in some ways a missed opportunity, right? They uh, basically, it was a technical fix to some extent, right? The president is on one ballot, the vice president is on another ballot in response to the election of 1800. Uh, but in other ways, it did not um, and could have uh, set a standardized system for allocating elections, electors, instead of leaving it with the state legislature, which would have alleviated at least some of our problems. Uh, but as so often happens with our elections, uh, we try to do the bare minimum in order to get us to the next point until things kind of blow up again. It really is a system that is governed by chaos. Uh, but I do think that um, there are some uh, notable exceptions that suggest that there are people who tend to rise above the chaos, right? So John Adams, he wasn't a terrific president, but he did leave, right? And that's probably his, <laughs> his you know, largest contribution to our system of democracy. He lost the election and he stepped down. The same could be said for Al Gore in 2000, right? He, um, the Supreme Court ruled in Bush versus Gore against him and he accepted it. Um, and so while concessions have no legal effect, uh, it does mean something in our system. And it's tied to this larger question that James raises about people believing in the system and questions about legitimacy. When a loser concedes, it says something about the legitimacy of our elections and the health of our democracy. And so I think one of the things about these these early elections and, and, and indeed, you know, even disputed elections, it's important that the losers step down in a way that was good for our system of government. Um, with respect to Congress, I think Congress, uh, although Congress uh, does have a role to play with respect to contested presidential elections, right? If there isn't a majority vote winner, uh, uh, a person who wins a majority of the electors, it goes to the House of Representatives and so on. Um, Congress also plays a very important role in other federal elections. Under Article 1, Section 5, Congress weighs in on the elections of its membership. Um, and so it's also a way for Congress to um, weigh in on the health of our democracy because um, their power under Article 1, Section 5, they, they basically can decide if an election is legitimate or not. They can look at disputed uh, uh, ballots and determine if the, the vote should count. They can call for a new election. Um, so Congress actually has quite a bit of power to um, influence our system of, of elections in a way that I think is uh, can be productive because during Reconstruction, uh, Congress played a pretty uh, important role in weighing in on some congressional elections where there was substantial racial discrimination, where there was substantial violence, um, as an attempt to, to try to, uh, at least on the back end, prevent those who benefited from such violence and discrimination from having a seat in, in, in the House or the Senate. Thank you for that memorable uh, description of the Adams presidency. He didn't uh, wasn't a great president, but he did lead by accepting the results. Uh, that description organized chaos for the whole system and also the role of Congress in regulating its own elections. Uh, Rob uh, Lieberman, in your book, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy, you note four critical threats where American democracy is seen fragile, political polarization, racism and nativism, economic inequality and excessive executive power. And you identify the presence of those threats in the 1790s and the 1850s leading up to the Civil War in the Gilded Age during the Great Depression in the 70s. I've just summarized your really important book uh, and there's much to say about it. But what can the, um, did, did uh, American democracy deal with those threats in different ways in each of the areas you identify or were the gems of the problem uh, obvious in the founding era itself? 
Well, it's a, it's a great question. Um, um, as you say, the four threats that you just identified, Jeff, um, what we discovered is that they come and go and, and combine and recombine in various ways in these periods in American history. And often these contested uh, or, uh, elections are really symptoms of other uh, threats that cause democracy to become uh, fragile. Um, and, uh, and often uh, the resolution of these threats um, is not really heroic or, uh, um, or not necessarily even forward-looking or forward-moving. Um, often resolutions have re revolved around um, um, some kind of democratic backsliding. Uh, to take the 1800 election, for example, that we've just been talking about, um, I mean, my colleagues are right that the 1790s leading up to the 1800 election was really the first period of intense polarization uh, in American history. And even though, as Jim rightly says, the founders didn't mean for this to happen and didn't really approve of it, some of the same people who wrote the Constitution were involved in the polarizing politics of the 1790s. Um, that, you know, and sometimes for legitimate reasons. They had different visions about policy and different visions for the future of the country and felt that elections were and, and government, government were a reasonable way to contest these um, contrasting visions. Um, and this was a period when people really feared that if the other side took control, that something would go wrong, that something would, 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 would slide backward. Um, and it was a period of violent conflict um, and, uh, and the election was really a remarkable moment, as Fernita says, when, when Adams stepped down um, and allowed the outcome of the election uh, to go forward and Jefferson became president. One thing I will point out, though, about the 1800 election is that the reason it was contested in the first place had to do with the three-fifths clause of the Constitution, which gave the southern states an extra uh, power in the Electoral College by counting three-fifths of the enslaved people and, and using that number as the basis for apportioning representatives in Congress and in the Electoral College. Without those votes, some historians have argued, um, Adams might very well have won the election and we wouldn't have ended up in this contested election in the House between Burr and Jefferson. Um, so the, the whole uh, uh, kicking off of democracy in the United States um, uh, has a lot to do with the presence of slavery and with the overrepresentation of uh, the slave states in the original uh, in the original republic. Thank you very much for that and for emphasizing the importance of slavery in so many of these disputes. Ned, um, in your book, uh, you note that uh, although many of the disputes you discuss took place in times of peace. Uh, that was different, of course, in the Civil War era, and your chapter, Counting Votes in Times of Crisis, identifies a series of elections starting in 1855 and going past the Civil War where the vote counting problems were special. Uh, you and Fernita joined us last week for a phenomenal podcast uh, and program on the election of 1876, so let's not talk as much about that one because we, we, we learned so much last week. But what can we learn from 19th and early 20th century efforts to resolve disputed elections about our current vexations? Well, I do think it's true that when um, the stakes seem so existential, we hear that word today, both candidates in our current presidential election are saying that the country that they perceive as our country will be lost if the other candidate wins. When you elevate the stakes that high, it's very hard to reach closure. It's hard to get the concession speech that Fernita was talking about. But every election has to have a winner or a loser. Um, in, in a way, the election of 1860, Lincoln won properly according to the Electoral College mechanism. He actually, and he wins according to the philosophy of the 12th Amendment, as I articulate in, in my new book. He wins a majority of the electoral votes in the Electoral College by being the majority winner in all the states that give him those electoral votes. But he doesn't win in the South. And so the South walks away, giving us the Civil War. We saw precursors of that in bloody Kansas. You know, the, the lead up to the Civil War was showing 
um, as, the, as they were fighting over Kansas, neither side was willing to accept defeat. They wouldn't accept the result of the ballot box. So, and they re- resorted to violence. Um, and then the violence went, went nationwide. The Picking up on Fernita's theme of congressional elections, the, the disputes over the congressional elections of 1862, I think are some of the most interesting stories about congressional races. Lincoln was very afraid that he might lose the Congress. And with losing the Congress to the Democratic Party, he might lose the war because the Democrats might not be willing to fund the war. Uh, So that's a fascinating story. And as we've all been saying, all of these stories are caught up in America's tragic circumstances with the issue of race. Um, Because without going into the details of of Hayes-Tilden, if we just combine that story with bleeding Kansas with the Civil War, you know, the existential nature of what is America is in part you know, who is America and who does America count for? Uh, so our elections got wrapped up in the biggest questions about our, our nation. Um, they, they did indeed. Uh, very well put. Uh, James, in your piece with Andrew Bush uh, in the Claremont Review, The Perfect Tie, uh, you put Bush v. Gore in context by noting previous extremely close elections. And in particular, you call out the elections of 1800 and 1876 as um, ones that were among the closest in American history, as well as 1916. What can you tell us about those 19th and early 20th century elections? Why were they so close and how how were they resolved? Well, uh, you know, a close election can still have a a fair outcome. so, but the problem I think in in uh, the Bush Gore and the case in in two thousand is that the election was not only close but disputed, and uh, that that's another point. You can have close elections that somehow aren't disputed. Uh, usually, that's the case that they're not disputed in one state, but they're they're close in in, in a nationwide context. Um, but uh, it was a uh, events in Florida put everything in the, in the context of one state in which it wasn't clear uh, from what happened in one state, who was the actual winner in that state. And that gave that state a particular procedural animosity, which differentiated it from, from some, some of the others, not 1876, but um, some, some of the other ones. So you look back over the course of American history, you find uh, many, many elections are astoundingly close um, uh, within a few points uh, uh, to a single point, but, but not contested. Um, so that that I, that I think makes that election uh, unique and interesting, and um, in, in some ways, uh, I guess, uh, tragic for for Al Gore, who couldn't quite get a victory out of it. I, I do think, in in looking at um, the election, what's amazing, looking at it from, from all of them, is um, how much some people are willing to engage in a kind of mischief, but a mischief that's within the law. And how difficult it is for the law, meaning the law now of um, the, the original constitutional scheme and the 12th Amendment, how difficult it is for the law to foresee all these uh, sorts of mischief. For example, in 1800, why do uh, Burr and Jefferson end up tying in their election? They end up tying because a couple of, of people in, in, in uh, Jefferson's own party um, contrived to make sure that the, uh, the vote between them ended up as a tie. Uh, most of the Republican Democrats knew that Jefferson was the, the presidential nominee. Most of the people knew it was the presidential nominee. But some people, instead of one person throwing away his vote so that the winner got one more vote than the vice president, they contrived to, to obscure that and to give them both the same vote. And then, the, uh, um, going further, the Federalists could have really uh, upset that election as they wanted and made um, uh, Burr the president with, with ease. They were tempted to do so. And that gives the other side. With the mischief, sometimes there's something nice that shows up. Hamilton, who was so much the enemy of, uh, of Jefferson, hated him, as he said. Nevertheless, in this case, called off the dogs and persuaded some of the, the Federalists to, to, to allow the election to go to Jefferson as it should have, on the, on the thesis that uh, this, in a way, was the best for the country. And that, that was a pretty interesting view. So we see this contention going on, the effort of the, the law to try and control 
uh, mischief, the difficulty of doing so, the willingness of so many people to, to use uh, th their uh, position to engage in more mischief, and, and it goes on and on. If this should come up in this election, I think it'd be um, especially uh, painful. I, I doubt that it will, but um, always a possibility. Thank you for that. And thanks for that helpful distinction between close elections where people are willing to accept the results and those that are not. So in that sense, Fernita, although we, you cast so much light on the election of 1876 uh, last week, why was it 100 years between 1876 and 2000, more, more, more than 100 years, of course, um, that uh, an election got so legalized and ended up uh, in, in the courts or in Congress. Uh, compare 1876 and 2000, and why was it that close elections in between, like 1960, for example, uh, didn't lead to uh, litigation? So I think it goes back a little bit to my earlier point about having people who are w willing to um, transcend partisanship. Because if you look at 1960, one of the interesting things that I've always thought about that particular election between Kennedy and Nixon is the fact that Nixon was the vice president opening the, um, doing the count, like overseeing the count in Congress in January. And he could have made a big deal about Hawaii's electoral votes, but he didn't. Um, and I just imagine what would have happened if we would have had Nixon circa 1972 as opposed to Nixon circa 1960, right? I think it, it could have been a different outcome there. And so I think one can say that similar things about the election of 1876. You had a Speaker of the House who was not willing to engage in the type of shenanigans that could have prolonged the outcome where it ran into a situation where we had dueling inaugurations, right? So um, in some of these disputes, we have people who are willing to rise above partisanship. But I do think that there's a key distinction between what happened in 2000 and prior contested elections. Um, I don't think we should um, understate the involvement of the Supreme Court, right? That, that's really notable, notable, noticeable, notable, excuse me. That's really notable that the Supreme Court involved themselves um, in, in that dispute. And I don't know if I should... As someone who uh, really loves the Warren Court era, I don't know if I should blame uh, Earl Warren for this, but I kind of want to, right? Because, um, you know, the the cases we think about with the court entering the political thicket, Reynolds versus, Reynolds versus Sims, Harper versus State Board of Elections, and so on, are all cases that sort of laid the foundation for the judicial policing of the political process. Um, so in some ways, Bush versus Gore, although a lot of people uh, were upset about judicial involvement. I wonder if the stage was set for this 50 years ago. Um, but it also makes it very different from a lot of the other contested presidential elections. I mean, you, can you imagine, you know, I don't know, Andrew Jackson <laughs> going to the court and saying, I should win the election of 1824? No, right? Because it wasn't, um, even with respect to contested congressional elections, you know, Article 1, Section 5, when, a, when, when Congress stepped in and resolved those disputes, that was it. Um, and so, you know, we, we live in a different time now where a lot of contested elections end up uh, in front of the courts in ways that I think have been largely bad um, for our, our democracy. That's a fascinating point. And you're, of course, absolutely right that it was decisions by the liberal Warren Court, Harper and so forth, that the conservative court in Bush v. Gore relied on um, in ways that for an originalist were hard to defend. So Rob, uh, is that a fundamental change that uh, Fernita identifies the judicialization judicialization of, uh, of voting rights, which really accelerated in the 1960s? Has, has it in fact led to more litigation over elections in the late 20th century? Or are you finding some of the same four factors that you identified earlier um, holding fast? No, I think I think that's I think that's a fair point. I think it's right that certainly Bush v. Gore was uh, different from the way we um, resolved these contested elections in the past. Um, you know, going back again to the 19th century, we also write in our book about the election of 1860 and bleeding Kansas. Um, in much the same way that Ned described. This is a rehearsal. Kansas is a rehearsal for the Civil War, in a sense, um, in which two sides are just irreconcilably, irreconcilably opposed over this critical issue. And the, the resort that they have is not to the courts, but to, um, you know, to all kinds of electoral chicanery and fraud and ultimately violence. I mean, you have in, in, in for a while in Kansas, you've got 
um, two dueling constitutions. You have the free state and the pro-slave uh, people with their own constitutions and separate state legislatures, let separate state legislatures, um, um, and ultimately violence. Um, and, and the same thing essentially repeats itself on the national stage in the election of 1860, which is really two elections, right? You have Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas running against each other in the North and John Bell and John Breckinridge running against each other in the South. Um, Lincoln isn't even on the ballot in 10 Southern states. Um, so, uh, Southerners wake up after that election and find that the new president is someone that didn't even have the opportunity to vote for. Um, but then again, the resort is, is not to the courts, um, or litigation, but to, but to secession and violence. And that's an extreme case. But again, it follows this period of intense polarization, um, intense undermining of the idea of the, of a legitimate opposition that we can disagree and be partisan opponents without enemies, the kind of intense partisanship that Fernita was talking about earlier, um, um, and, uh, and that pattern, again, repeats itself in the 1890s, not in presidential elections, but in some local elections that we describe in the book in North Carolina. Um, um, so I think the, the, I guess the judicialization or legalization of these election disputes is an advance, but it's not um, always the most satisfactory way to resolve these disputes. A, a very interesting suggestion that the judicialization might itself be a kind of safety valve that would avoid secession or violence. Um, our Q&A box, of course, wants to uh, learn about the lessons of the past for the present. And Bonnie Margolis asks, so to jump to a question on everyone's mind, two weeks from the from the 2020 election day, what precedents will impact what how results are counted, are one, counted and verified, to the potential for a contingent election scenario, despite potential overwhelming votes for one candidate. Three, the role of the Supreme Court for the future of the Electoral College. Great question, Bonnie. I know Ned could field them in turn, but what, why don't we uh, take Bonnie's question as an invitation for you to identify what the legal scenarios are after Election Day that you are most concerned about? Yeah, thanks. Um... Uh, and I do want to pick up on this point about what should or the role of the court be, because um, this is a question that America is confronted with. Uh, what Again, what is the right institution for handing, handling an intense partisan dispute? Can only have one winner, the other side has to lose. Um, the, the takeaway, one takeaway from my study was that the 19th century was beset with violence uh, not just surrounding the Civil War and bleeding Kansas, but there was some violent incidents in the 1890s, as we just talked about. Um, the 20th century was marked, in contrast, by mostly peaceful means because courts got involved, not necessarily the federal court, um, but disputes tended to go to court as opposed to in the streets. Um, and that seemed to be a better way, uh, more rule of law oriented, more fair play due process. Um, interestingly, a hundred years before Bush versus Gore, the great dissenter of the Supreme Court, the first John Marshall Harlan, writes a dissent in a case out of Kentucky, which is one of the ugliest disputes in American history because it involved tragically the assassination of one of the candidates for governor in the context of the vote counting dispute. So violence of the ugliest form. Um, and there, but there was an effort to go to court. The Supreme Court turned it away under the so-called political question doctrine, saying we, the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to these political controversies. John Marshall Harlan dissents, oh, yes, it should. We're talking about fundamental principles of fair play in a democracy. Stuffing the ballot box is the worst violation of the liberties to be protected by the 14th Amendment. But he was his sole dissent, like he was in Plessy versus Ferguson, a lonely voice. And yet his principle is the one that gets vindicated a century later in Bush versus Gore when the 14th Amendment is used to constitutionalize these issues. Now, as Fernita said, that's building on Warren Court precedents in a different context of election law, but applying them to vote counting disputes. So is that bringing it into the right forum? Or because right now the new court is very conflicted. The current Supreme Court is not enamored of the Warren Court precedents. 
The current Supreme Court wants to revert to the political question doctrine as it did in the gerrymandering case. So if this Supreme Court gets another vote counting dispute like Bush versus Gore, it's going to have a clash of constitutional values and a clash of precedents in terms of what to do. I don't know which way it's going to go. I think that's very much up in the air. And that's a big picture point that could apply to any of the details that we might talk about uh, going forward tonight. Fascinating. Uh, James, in your book, The Perfect Tie, The True Story of the 2000 Presidential Election, you examine the factors that led uh, to a near-perfect tie in 2000. And in a more recent piece, What If They Tie, a nightmare election for November 2020, a nightmare election scenario, you suggest that in the case of a really close election, it might not be the courts that decide, but the House of Representatives, and you suggest that things there could get pretty complicated. So tell us about what that nightmare scenario is, how might or might not the House decide it, and whether you think the courts could or should get involved. On the courts getting involved, I think the Supreme Court ended up getting involved in this because of the Florida Supreme Court. The, the, this issue was taken over by a judicial branch at the state level. And I, what I believe was the most outrageous part of the whole thing, the behavior of the Florida Supreme Court. Um, and since it was already in the judicial arena, therefore it was raised to the federal uh, judicial arena. I, my own opinion was it would have been better to have done it without the courts and have let the political process go on its own track. And I don't think the courts would ever have gotten involved in it. Whether the federal Supreme Court should have gotten involved, I don't know. It could have let it go and it would have gone to the House and uh, Bush would have run anyhow in the House if you look at, at the thing. So that's kind of how I look at that, that they were, they were forced to get in. It wasn't a great decision, but the, uh, the thing about the election of 2000, it had to end somewhere. And I guess the court decided that was the place to end it uh, for good or, 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 or for ill. For the current uh, election, for, for this to get into the courts uh, in some way, there's going to have to be something um, technical and judicial about it. Otherwise, it will be settled uh, politically. We have political mechanisms uh, for handling this. Um, what the, the uh, governors and the state legislatures do, normally the state legislatures can step in at any point and choose a new slate of electors, and those will be counted. Or what Congress would finally do um, uh, using its uh, its powers uh, to decide it. Uh, so I, I lean much more to the political side. And I guess I regard 2000 in a way as an accident that the court um, uh, became so involved. That's a technical answer, but that, that's uh, that's more or less how I feel. Th thanks for that. Uh, Frenita, do, do you think it was an accident and that th this court uh, is unlikely to want to repeat the example of Bush v. Gore, and, and maybe because you raised this really provocative question, what would you say to those of us, and in an age when I was allowed to have constitutional opinions, I, I was a critic of Bush v. Gore on constitutional grounds, those of us who thought the decision was poorly reasoned, in, 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 ret in retrospect, is there a case to be made that better the Supreme Court than the political system to avoid violence, or on balance, do you think the court should stay out of it this time? I think that it depends. Um, so, so one distinction that I would make is that uh, even though the 1960s were uh, a time of great social unrest, um, there, it had pretty low partisanship in terms. It wasn't as uh, politically polarized as other era, era as other eras. So, in the 1950s in particular, you had the I believe it was the American Political Science Association claiming for stronger, you know, making claims for stronger, more politically ide uh, ideological parties. Um, and, and leading into the 1960s, you had uh, Republicans who uh, signed on to the Civil Rights Act. Um, you know, you had uh, both Republicans and Democrats. And so you had more uh, bipartisanship. Um, and so maybe we are OK with court involvement at times where there's not high levels of political polarization, because there's less risk that the court itself will be tarred with the brush of being um, a partisan actor. Um, I think that the question we face in 2020 as to whether or not this is preferable for the court to resolve it or for it to stay with the political branches depends on that very thing as well, right? We're at a time of uh, really high partisan polarization. And, and I do think the Chief Justice has internalized the lesson of 2000. Um, so to some extent, I, I think that the conservative justices who weighed in on Bush versus Gore, they felt justified for many of the reasons that James identifies. 
right? They felt like the Florida Supreme Court was a runaway court that was making all of these crazy decisions and they felt like they had no choice but to step in. Um, And so, you know, regardless if you disagree with that or not, the fallout was that it was a time of increasing polarization because polarization substantially increased over the 1990s, uh, particularly with the election of um, the Republicans taking over the House in 96. Um, and so it was a different time than, you know, 40 years ago when the Supreme Court was decided to enter the political thicket. So the, the misfortune is the fact that the Supreme Court weighed in on a contested election at a time in our history of increasing partisan polarization and also in a way that was pretty unprecedented for the court itself. Right. So you have the chief justice probably looking at all of this, trying to figure out ways to avoid the Supreme Court weighing in on anything that happens to bubble up to the Supreme Court this time around, because our polarization is arguably much worse now than it was 20 years ago. Um, so but but ultimately, this question of whether or not we prefer the court to be involved um, cannot be divorced in my mind from where are we at in our politics. So, uh, so interesting. And that point that the people are more likely to accept judicial decisions when uh, the court themselves are less polarized is is, is, is crucial. Uh, Robert, um, whether or not the court intervenes this time, uh, e- either decision will provoke controversy. E- even the, the principle that the Supreme Court is applying in recent election cases, the Purcell principle, which disfavors last minute judicial intervention to change election rules, itself obviously has partisan results. Um, in, in light of your study of how uh, the many eras in which American democracy has seemed at the risk of backsliding, would will, will judicial intervention or not uh, be decisive in uh, whether or not America emerges from this election if it's close um, intact? In or are there broader factors like political polarization, racism, nativism, economic inequality, and excessive executive power more important than what the courts decide to do? I think the I think the broader factors are 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 will turn out to be more important. I mean, there may come a scenario, and I'll leave this to my legal scholar colleagues to to ponder. But there may come a scenario where the court has to make a decisive ruling one way or the other that will help us determine the outcome of this particular election. Um, but I don't think that that will um, get rid of the challenge that's posed by the confluence of all these four. Uh, threats right now. Um, they'll still all be there. We'll still be as polarized as we were, um, uh, you know, on January 21st. Uh, we'll, um, um, uh, racial conflict will still be a serious problem in the United States. Economic inequality, um, an extremely powerful presidency coupled with gridlock in Congress. So all of the conditions that make for democratic fragility will still be there. Um, so, t- you know, I think, um, um, and I think the, uh, you know, I think if I were on the court, um, I would, for the reasons my colleagues have already suggested, be wary about stepping into that, although their hands might be forced by a case that, that comes to them. And we, you know, we know the president expects this to happen because he said so um, as part of his justification for the recent uh, nomination. But, um, but I think the, the deeper conditions underlying the, the challenge that we're facing now are what I really worry about. And what, I, what, what, what really keeps me up nights is that, you know, the way this election goes, whether it happens in the courts or not, will undermine our sense that we have free and fair elections in the United States, um, will further erode the idea that I mentioned before of a legitimate opposition um, the idea that we can be opponents or, or election electoral antagonists without being enemies, um, and will and will further degrade the integrity of the sort of basic rights that we depend on to keep the democracy viable. Thank you for raising that uh, distressing possibility, which which is indeed one for concern. Um, in this round, uh, we have lots of great questions about particular um, crises that might arise. Um, I'll note a few of them that, uh, just to put them on the table, Colin Thibault asked, would state legislatures have the power to reject the popular vote of the people in their state and be able to present electors of their choice, people of their own party? Uh, Rod Kavanaugh asked, to help prevent contested elections, what are the most important reforms Congress could enact to prohibit states from engaging in selective voter 
suppression and force them to conduct elections that meet international standards. But rather than um, directing any particular question, you Ned, you can take up one of those or, or just tell tell our listeners what's keeping you up at night? What are the scenarios you're most concerned about? And what should we be looking for from history about how to resolve them? Sure. Um, I do think, you know, once we get past this election, I really hope that Congress takes up reform, including some of the procedures involving uh, the possibility of another disputed election. Because if we escape the frailty and the vulnerabilities that exist, in my judgment now, that'll be a good thing, that escape. But it doesn't mean those frailties and vulnerabilities aren't there. They're still there. And uh, they've been there for a while, really ever since 1876 and the Electoral Count Act that was adopted in 1887 uh, to, to try to have a better statute, but it's not perfect. So that's what keeps me up at night, that, that we will have a dispute this year that will replicate the Hayes-Tilden dispute structurally. And what that will look like, picking up on the question that you raised, it would be this competing submissions from the same state, whether it's Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Florida, it could be the legislature setting itself up in opposition to the secretary of state and the governor. It might be the governor setting him or herself up in opposition to what the state Supreme Court does, perhaps in Michigan or Wisconsin. But if you get simultaneous conflicting submissions of electoral votes from the state, that's the circumstance of Hayes-Tilden, and it was so precarious for reasons that we discussed last week. Um, and so I hope we avoid that, for what, however we avoid that, but that's the thing that worries me most, because, because it would involve the most difficult sets of procedures that Congress has under the 12th Amendment uh, for reasons we could go into, but, but they're not an ideal set of procedures. Thank you for that. Uh, James, the same question to you, because it's an important one. What's keeping you up at night? If you do share with our viewers your scenario about how things could really get complicated if this election goes to the House, and what are other nightmare scenarios that you're concerned about? Yeah, I guess, um, let me go back to the election of 1860 and take it uh, there was no uh, dispute in the election of 1860 of who won according to constitutional standards. L Lincoln won. I don't know anyone in the South who said he didn't win. So in a way, the, the, the problem of 1860 went way beyond the Constitution. You had one part of the country that decided it wanted out, um, whether, it was whether it was according to the rules of the Constitution or not. They, they, they pulled out. And um, Nothing about the rules could have helped that one way or the other. They were irrelevant. The only thing the South objected to uh, was that formerly there had been a, a norm in the United States that both political parties would be national. And the Republican Party was not national. It was Northern. And um, th this the, the Southerners mentioned several times, but uh, they were on their way out. Coming to the current scene, it seems to me that there's one technical issue that's important is that the uh, Democrats in general don't accept the Electoral College, and th they're getting tired of, of, of losing elections that they believe that they've won. By all their standards, uh, normative standards, they believe that the rules of the Electoral College are unfair and unjust, whereas a lot of people look at it on, on, uh, in another, from another point of view. That's the thing we have, and it's defensible. So, so there's that issue. The other issue, it seems to me, though, in, in the current thing is that um, uh, the, the people in, on the different side don't respect the idea that the majority uh, sh should decide the uh, election. They believe that by right, they, they have the, the, the proper point of view, regardless of who gets more votes, and, uh, or regardless of who gets votes according to the rules of the Constitution. And that's what I find from uh, Democratic friends. Um, as I said, they, they don't like the Electoral College, but they, they also don't think that these people who are uh, currently governing the people, uh, the the nation should be governing it by every standard that they regard as important. And uh, uh, may maybe the Republicans will see will feel the same way after the uh, the next election if they lose that they just don't respect the outcome of the election. So there's an underlying normative issue, um, which it troubles me far more than the, the technical issues. I, I see it could be a technical issue, but. I, I, I think that those deeper issues are, are very worrying about whether we can keep our, our democracy. We're slipping into situations now where lots of the country is governed by militias. 
and by mobs. Uh, I mean, it's just the way it is. Uh, we're outside the bounds of what normally constitutes a, a well-functioning uh, democratic order all across the nation. And um, these are troubling signs that go beyond the rules of the election. Thank you for those troubling scenarios. Indeed, for noting the lack of legitimacy of the Electoral College among some. And uh, by the way, friends, if you want to hear the best debate about whether or not to keep the Electoral College the Constitution Center has ever hosted, uh, Professor Caesar joined Jesse Wegman. Uh, you can find it on the We the People podcast, and it was uh, extremely illuminating. And also, uh, 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 James, for noting uh, the fact that neither side may be willing to accept the legitimacy of the result. Uh, Fernita, what is keeping you up most at night and what are you most concerned about? So um, every morning I get up and I say the election administrator's prayer, right? Please, Lord, don't let it be close. But then I realize that um, let's say it's not close. Nothing happens, right? This, this is the pathology of America, right? If we get through this, okay, nothing changes, Remember 2012, the long lines and Obama says, we have to do something about that. Then we got a commission and nothing happened. 2016, you know, even with Trump's voter fraud thing, nothing happened. Well, I knew nothing would happen with that, but that's besides the point. But my, my broader point is that nothing ever happens whenever we get past some election successfully. The reason something happened in response to Hayes Tilden is because we were two days out from dual inaugurations and, and substantial violence, right? That was real bad. Um, and so it took 11 years, but we ended up with the Electoral Count Act because Congress knew after close elections in the early 1880s that they couldn't afford to keep doing this. So that's that's the problem. Nothing changes unless things get really, really, really bad. And the question we have to ask ourselves, you know, are we there? Um, and I think James is right. I think we are there. Uh, but I, I am also very cognizant of the fact that if we get through November 3rd successfully, then that diminishes the incentive for people to push for change. And we really do need to keep the focus on that. There's no reason for us to have gotten to this point. Um, we have had two elections in the last 20 years where the popular vote winner lost the Electoral College, right? That, that, that's a signal that something's wrong and that we need to revisit it and re rethink about that. The fact that since 2016, 2016, excuse me, things have descended into a point where, um, as James points out, militias are governing part of the country. I mean, we, we need to have broader conversations about the health of our democracy that we don't have in, in instances where we get past the elections that are being um, contended for. And, and that's a problem. We really do have to keep the focus on the fact that we have uh, deep flaws in our system that we need to address, regardless of what happens on November 3rd. Many thanks for noting those flaws and keeping our attentions focused on it. Uh, Robert, I think the last word is to you. Um, we have a question from our colleague, uh, Stephen Ruckman from the Agora Institute, which I'll read and ask you to answer and then ask you to leave our viewers with uh, concluding thoughts in this very sobering and illuminating conversation. Uh, Stephen Ruckman asks, as we've been listening, the Supreme Court in a pair of four to four votes, Roberts with the progressives, rejected GOP requests to stay Pennsylvania court rulings that allowed counting of absentee ballots that arrived shortly after election day with no postmark. Is this a sign of rulings to come in the days or weeks after the election that diverge from the Bush v. Gore interventionist approach? If you want to take a stab at that and then leave us with some concluding thoughts, that would be great. Oh, good Lord. I'm not even going to try and prognosticate what the Supreme Court is going to do. I feel if I'm, you know, lawyers aren't good at that and I'm, 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 uh, I'm not even going to give a, give that a shot. I mean, I think, but I think, um, you know, clearly we're at a point, I think Fernita is absolutely right. We're at a point where we need to address these kinds of technical issues and clarify the standards um, and uh, figure out how to run a complex, close election in a way that's clean, in a way that people recognize and understand as, um, as, as reasonable and can accept. Um, I, I think, but I think more broadly, I mean, I agree with Jim that the, the bigger problem is that no matter what comes out of this election, almost no matter what comes out of the, this election, no matter who wins and how it comes about, we're going to be living in a country where half the people look at the election outcome as illegitimate and problematic. 
um, whether it's because once again we have a popular winner who doesn't win the electoral college, or you know if the president is reelected, if 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 the president is not reelected, um, he's sort of seeded the ground for his followers and for people in his party to believe that he was screwed out of the election by fraud uh, or by some kind of malfeasance. Um, and I think that's not a good situation to be in. And that's, that's, you know, to back to the last conversation, that's what, what re- I really worry about is no matter which way the election goes, whether it's close or not, that we're in a scenario where people don't trust the legitimacy of their government. Um, and I think that's, uh, uh, that's a very troubling scenario, especially when, as Jim says, you know, um, there are lots of parts of the country that seem to be uh, at the at the mercy of of armed militias. Well, that scenario that you that you've identified and that all of you have cast light on a scenario where people don't trust the legitimacy of their government is indeed one of grave concern. Uh, I want to thank each of you for having cast such uh, coruscating light on it. <laughs> and also note that um, this collaboration with the SNF Agora Institute is one that will continue after the election. On November 11th, we will reconvene with Agora Institute scholars, including Ann Applebaum and Yasha Monk uh, and others, to discuss the way forward. How can we reconstitute uh, the legitimacy of American democracy? Uh, and of course, then we'll know what, what happened in November. Uh, Robert Rosenberg asked, will this be available for later viewing? Absolutely. It'll be up on YouTube and on the Constitution Center's Interactive Constitution, a a, a cornucopia of constitutional learning that I want you to check out, uh, Robert, and all of our great listeners. ASAP, later tonight or tomorrow, it'll also be broadcast on our Live at the NCC podcast. I'm so grateful to each of you, Ned Foley, James Caesar, Vernita Tolson, and Robert Lieberman for bringing history and reason to bear on these important questions about election and the future of American democracy. Uh, Thank you all uh, for joining uh, at home and look forward to reconvening after the election. Many thanks. Have a good night. This program was presented in partnership with the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber and Lana Ulrich. If you enjoyed this conversation, please check out last week's episode of Live at the National Constitution Center to learn more about one of the elections discussed in this conversation, the Hayes-Tilden election of 1876. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.